Welcome to episode 22 of the Data Driven Strength Podcast. Uh, first and foremost, we want to say a big thank you to anybody that has left a rating and review on iTunes. Um, pretty cool to see those um, those come in. So we re really appreciate your time doing that. Um, today, I have a few questions lined up um, for myself, Zach, and Jake to answer. First one's going to be on partial range of motion training. Uh, the second one's going to kind of talk about volume versus intensity and, and what you might respond to um, in terms of strength outcomes. And the last one, we're going to kind of uh, dive into the different ways to conceptualize RPE versus RAR. So without any further ado, I'm going to pass this first question about partial range of motion off to Jake. Um, this question we do not have a name for. We have a name for the other two, but this is just asking, do you recommend slash use partial range of motion training? So uh, I think that there's sort of three main uh, times when I might recommend that. In general, uh, for hypertrophy, I think in general, doing a more full range of motion is usually better. Uh, but there are some, some exceptions to that. For strength, we're already sort of doing a partial range of motion for powerlifting. Like we're not trying to get more range of motion than we need to. So um, I'm assuming this is mostly for hypertrophy training. The three main reasons I would say one is obviously if you're working around an injury, there's something that hurts, a certain position that hurts. Obviously, doing a partial range of motion might be a good way to still include that lift and still include a high intensity, but just avoid that painful range of motion. Second, um, if there's a, a movement that tends to be difficult or tends to not be difficult in a long muscle length, something that we've talked about before where maybe doing a partial range of motion in that long muscle length could be beneficial for hypertrophy. Um, an example of that could be uh, like pull-ups or lat pull-downs, for example, right? Like if you, if you reach technical failure with the full range of motion, but you can still do more reps at that long muscle length, that could be beneficial. And then the third one that I think is maybe not talked about a ton that I've seen not super consistent success, but some success with some clients is just for building confidence. So like I've had a couple people do block pulls for no other reason than it just gets them confident with heavier weights. Then when they go back to do full range of motion, yes, it's lighter weight, but it just feels so much more comfortable in their hands. So I guess that's sort of a strength one, but those are really my, my main three that come to mind. I don't know if you guys have anything to add there. Not too much to add, Jake. I would, I would echo, um, Definitely been playing around a lot with myself and, and a few clients with the exercises that are generally challenging at a short muscle length and, and doing some what, what I've just been called like lengthened partials. Um, shout out to Brian Borstein. He was the one I first saw doing that. And I was like, oh, that's a neat idea. Uh, and I had been trying that a few things on like leg extensions, the back movements like you mentioned, Jake, as well. Um, I don't think we have necessarily any conclusive evidence to say that that is necessarily going to be better or anything but theoretically it makes sense and most importantly it's kind of fun it just mixes things up a little bit um but no that's definitely sometimes uh i think it, it could be useful i think doing partials in the lengthened position too like in terms of like cutting off the top like i've been doing like some really high reps uh split squats stuff like that um helps kind of get through those uh really challenging sets sometimes mentally um doing off a little bit off that uh top range of motion don't know if that's a good thing, but I've just been doing that a lot recently. I was doing those today, so it was on the top of my mind. Um, and then for strength, too, like you said, Jake, I think sometimes uh, there's utility in, in using some type of partial range of motion, whether that is to navigate like a, a technical 
uh, range of motion constraint, like pin bench is one thing that comes to mind for me, like a higher range pin bench, uh, a lot of the times can help groove that bar path uh, right in the sticking point for, for somebody's bench press. Um, so I'll use that quite a bit. Um, but yeah, other than that, I think you hit on most of the other things. Um, go ahead, Josh. I, I was had one more thing, but I got to remember what I was going to say. Yeah, just jump in if you if you think of it. I, I totally echo what you guys said. Um, just to add a little bit of color as to why you might want to like kind of extend a set. Like let's say you're doing cable rows, right? You're probably going to like hit failure when you're like close to your chest, right? At a, at a short muscle length because that's the hardest part of the repetition. Um, so this kind of goes back to what we talk about when we say that like a set endpoint or like failure is is kind of I don't want to say arbitrary but it's it's dependent on the specific exercise right so like you're failing the cable row because you can't get it all the way to your to your chest or your belly or whatever um but theoretically you still have like more RAR in you at a longer muscle length so the idea would be okay there's still there's still gas uh, there's still gas in the tank through a different part of the range of motion so you know, I, and, and this is why, or, or I kind of hypothesize that this is why people think they can handle a ton of volume in their back. Um, just kind of anecdotally, Hey, Biceps, like my, so. yeah. Um, you know, Side lateral notes. raises I can, ha- I can do, I can do 20 sets of lateral raises per week and be fine. Um, because you're not really taking those like as close to failure at a long muscle length, if you will. Um, so that's kind of the general thought process. And I just kind of wanted to add some color to that. Cause I do think it's pretty interesting um, when people give these hard cutoffs for RAR, it's like, there's nothing like we, we can't just say a two RAR is a two RAR across every exercise because the exact context of what zero RAR is your anchors is going to be exercise dependent and, and where the hardest, what the muscle length that at where the hardest part of the range of motion is. So just want to add some color there. Zach, did you think of, yeah, the other thing I was going to say is I remember I been a long time since I read the study, but there's a study on, um, squats versus partial squats. And I think one group that did both. And I think the group that did both styles of squats did get a little bit stronger. If I remember correctly, uh, it's escaping me the exact details, but point being, I think there could be some beneficial, I don't know if it's confidence, if it's, Sometime of other adaptation to very very heavy loading on the joint. Don't not really sure, but I think there could be applications for for that for strength as well. Since we mostly are focusing on hypertrophy, but I I would agree like just to come back to long muscle length stuff. There's just been a lot of recent research that has really made this point seem seem super applicable in a lot of people's training. So like I think moving towards movements like incline curls and stuff like that, Josh is just something that I've I've done for myself and for clients as I think the, the volume recommendations, like you said, is something that's super tangible that I think a lot of people kind of repeat. Um, like, Oh man, I, my back can handle a ton of volume. I'm never sore. Same thing with biceps, same thing with side delts. And I think that really is just because the conventional movements that we do generally stress the muscle at a moderate to short muscle length. Um, and, and you don't see a lot of people doing incline curls as their kind of primary bicep movement which there could be an argument that maybe it should be. So I think, uh, I think that's a really good point. Sweet. Um, I guess this next one, I'll go ahead and pass it over to Zach. So this question comes from Justin and this is how can you determine if someone responds better to volume or intensity for strength? And then how might you break up your training volume to skew that? So I'm going to interpret this question to say 
responding better to volume or intensity. I'm going to assume that means like just generally, you know, lower repetition, higher load sets versus higher repetition, lower load sets, because saying volume or intensity probably doesn't make a ton of sense within itself, just because you're always performing some degree of intensity. It's more of a descriptor and the same thing with, with volume, you're doing some amount of volume or you wouldn't be training. Um, that's more of a descriptor. So that's how I'm going to interpret the question. And so then this comes back to, you know, we've talked about this a ton in terms of determining the individual response um, to a given training style. And I think this is a, it's a complex question. Um, and I don't, I, I personally don't think it's as simple as saying I respond to this and I don't respond to this. Um, I think it's absolutely the case that you could observe that a given training block results in a better response than another training block. But the way that we draw information from that is a little bit more complicated than just simply saying this style of training works better for me. Um, I think you have to consider, you know, all of the factors outside of the gym that would be permissive to progress. You have to think about your nutritional status, your sleep, your stress, all of those things. If you had the exact same training intervention, but those change considerably outside of the gym, that could result in a super positive response in the second block if you get all your your ducks in a row outside of the gym, but the training intervention didn't really change. So is it the fact that you don't respond to the training intervention in block A, or is it just the fact that other factors are permissible for progress in the psychic example? So I think you have to consider that. And then also, I think it's often presented in like a pretty binary way of like, I'm changing the training intervention to style B versus style A, but there's just so many things that go into what we, you know, we've talked about or called like the overall training dose. So you could have higher volume, uh, you know, higher repetition, lower load generally training, but you know, we have to consider the psychological arousal, the proximity to failure of those sets, the exercise selection that you're using. Like we just had a whole talk on long muscle lengths. Generally exercises that stress muscles at a longer length are probably going to cause a little bit more damage, a little bit more fatigue. So that's something else to consider that if you have the exact same training block, but you switch the exercise selection slightly to bias it more towards longer muscle lengths, that also is going to affect the overall training dose. So point being, I think it's a little bit more complicated than saying I respond to this and I don't respond to this. Now, I don't think that should be, well, shit, what do I do then? That's not really helpful. What I mean to say there is that I think we have a lot more flexibility and there's a lot more training programs that are going to result in effective progress so long as we kind of line everything up in a logical manner to kind of meet this overall stress level that's going to allow you to make progress. So all that to say, from a practical perspective, you know, you try to keep things as similar as you can, and you're going to see, you know, from an objective perspective, whatever your, your benchmark for progress is, whether that's a single out of an eight RP, whether that's a triple out of six RP, whatever that is, we're very big on being outcome oriented. So you want to give each training style that you're talking about here, a good amount of time, observe the outcomes that you actually care about. In this example for strength, it's going to be those benchmark sets or an estimated one RM, whatever you want to track. And you look for whatever each of those training styles allows for a better increase in objective performance. All this stuff I said prior is just to say, it's not super black and white though. You can make minor modifications to those, each of those recipes and probably get a, get a positive result. And you also have to consider all the stuff going outside of the gym. Um, so hopefully that was helpful to some degree, guys, where, where did I go wrong? Where can I add some, uh, some color here? Yeah, I would agree with the general message that 
like it, it's a false dichotomy to say that you you respond better to volume or you respond better to intensity um, for all the reasons you outlined, Zach. Um, but you might still observe that, hey, for sure. in general, Absolutely. In, in general, I just feel a lot better when I'm doing 65% for my back off volume as opposed to 77.5%. So it, it, it's it's not that like, again, it's not like you, you you're, that, that change is going to necessarily unlock progress or it's like that that magic key, you know, that, that you turn and then you can all, all of a sudden, you know, break through plateaus. But um, I, I do think like you could definitely straw man this question and be like, that, that that's not, you know, um, that's not really how this works. But I do think you can observe that. Yeah. And I think how you determine that is just how you determine how you respond to anything else. So, you know, run a training cycle through, observe the results, contextualize it, take notes, rinse and repeat. And, and, and eventually, if you do that enough times, you're going to have a really good idea of, hey, this combination of, of top set exposures followed by this kind of general back down protocol seems to work really well. Um, this proportion of, Hey, maybe I only do a top set on squats and then I just go ahead and and do leg extensions or, or leg press for the rest of my volume. Um, you know, that, that's another factor that we think is important to individualize. So I think those are, these are all things that you can kind of consider. Um, now the next thing I would note is I don't necessarily like when I'm troubleshooting for someone, my head doesn't go to, Oh, this is a volume responder. Oh, this is an intensity responder. I still think the general tenets of training apply and that we need to have, you know, uh, sufficient intensity or at least exposures to sufficient intensity to, um, you know, be able to practice the skill of, of lifting heavy weight. You need to have sufficient volume in order for them to progress, but not too much, um, so that you can't recover from that training volume. Um, but I, again, my head goes to different, um, avenues of individualization, right off the bat, if, if, if I'm trying to troubleshoot an athlete's response, as opposed to saying, okay, you know what, screw it. We're just going to do 55% for 12s for the rest of the training block. Um, so yeah, hopefully that Justin, hopefully that is helpful for you. Go ahead. Zach. I'm going to add just a few more things, hopefully. So I don't get misinterpreted. Um, so the first thing to say is like Josh said, you absolutely can observe differences in response that that is not what i'm arguing i think that absolutely happens all the time somebody runs a training block with you know triples at 85 percent of one rm and they just burn out that happens all the time i've seen it myself as well they run a training block at average load of like 70 percent of one rm and they do great i'm not disputing that that occurs i would just view it differently than saying this person responds to volume or low intensity or however you want to frame it like I said, I just think there's so many factors that go into that equation to observe that than just saying this specific formula is, is, uh, I don't, I don't want to say magic. Cause I think that's a straw man, uh, of the other position, but that's the word that's coming to mind. It's, 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 um, particularly special for this person. What, what I, what I'm trying to avoid is two things. I, I, I want, don't want these people to have success with a certain training style and not have success with another training style and just completely write it off. Like, I think that first of all, it makes things can have considerably less flexibility, which ultimately I think can limit, you know, 
uh, having fun long-term. Like we talk about one of the main benefits of periodization is just switching things up for psychological reasons. Like that's huge. And if you have like this entire paradigm that you have dictated yourself that you don't respond to because you're looking at it in a very black and white way, I think that takes a ton of options off the table. So that's the way I think about it. When I hear, oh, I'm a this responder, in my mind, I automatically think you're just throwing all these other things off the table that could have utility so long as it's in the appropriate context. So like, let's go back to this example of a person that has just burned out on triples and 85%. Things that come to mind, how many heavy exposures do they have per week? How are they psychologically approaching those uh, exposures? How many load limiting variants are they using in terms of exercise selection? What type of volumes are they? Like you could change all that stuff, modify that to be a little bit more reasonable, keep the triples at 85% and they could have a positive response. So is it is it the fact that you do or don't respond to the given training protocol or is it the entire picture when we take a step back and like we've talked about a hundred times, it's just this theoretical concept of training dose. We can't really quantify it, but it seems to exist for everyone that there's a stress level that allows you to recover and make progress. And there are many different combinations of variables that can lead to that to happen. Now, once again, that's not to say that some aren't going to be a more psychologically enjoyable for the individual that probably leads to a feedback loop of them consistently having progress with a similar style of training. I think that happens all the time. And I think that would be a situation in which you'd find yourself coming back to a similar batch of training multiple times. But again, I don't think that necessarily should lead us to just throwing all these other things off the table and saying, I don't respond to that. Because I think if you, again, if you modified the, the surrounding factors, I think you probably could. It's just understanding, like I said, this, this kind of theoretical concept of dose that's going to allow somebody to progress, but ultimately coming back to those outcomes, because that's all that matters at the end of the day. We can talk about this fancy kind of idea that we have, but ultimately those outcomes matter the most. But eventually that training style probably isn't going to lead to those positive outcomes anymore. And if you've just thrown all these training styles off the table because you don't respond to them, where are you going to go from there? So I think it's a little bit more forgiving when you kind of consider this on a very long time scale over the course of a lifting career, that there's going to be this stress level that you respond to. And we can put different places in place that are going to lead to training configurations and approaches to that training psychologically that are going to be permissive for progress. And that's probably both of those are going to change over time. The, the stress level that you respond to and the configuration that's going to allow for positive outcomes in the moment. Jake, you got anything to add? Honestly, no, that was very well said. I've been sitting here thinking this whole time, like trying to think of other things to add and you just kept hitting on each point. Yeah. Um, Super quick, just a a couple things to add um, related to this question. So the first is that just to piggyback off what Zach literally just finished saying um, is like, you have this theoretical training dose where like, you know, you want to be within a, a certain range of like this theoretical optimal training dose right? In order for you, in in order for like, to kind of like to get progress off the ground. But I think the crux here is that there are different ways to arrive at a given training dose. And in order to, in order for, you know, notice that I use the word permissive, right? So that being in the right range of training dose is permissive, but in order for you to actually see progress is um, when what is contributing to that training dose is actually productive training. So this is where the tenants of training come in, right? It's like, okay, are we practicing the main lift? Do we have sufficient um, high intensity expo- exposures? You know, is, is this lifter 
just generally practicing the lift enough? Um, you know, are you growing, you know, are you, are you, uh, like putting a, a, a hypertrophic stimulus to the target muscles, right? Like there, there are a ton of ways to land on a given training dose. Um, but in order for that to actually lead to progress is when the configuration of that training dose is actually productive training. So you can kind of work backwards from there and say, okay, theoretically for the average athlete, we can look at exercise science, literature in general, say, these are the tenets of training, but where am I going to compromise? Because this lifter needs to have a different configuration in order to still check their boxes for the most part, but land at the given training dose. And that's why, you know, something like 85% for, for a bunch of singles might be helpful or something like 62.5% for eights might be helpful. Are those like go-tos for us? No, but they might have a time and place because, you know, we've kind of worked backwards from like the tenants of training, but still kind of landing in that, that training dose for the individual because 62.5% for eight for me is going to lead to a different like degree of training dose than it will for Zach on a given lift for psychological reasons, physiological reasons, biomechanical reasons, et cetera. So hopefully that conceptualization kind of helps uh, to some degree. The, the second thing to kind of make this uh, answer hopefully a little bit more practical um, to kind of give some insight into how I would approach this in practice is that I wouldn't necessarily go and say, I'm going to manipulate your intensity specifically or at least dramatically. That I, I typically view changes in average intensity as downstream to other factors. So by modulating the top set exposures, that's going to um, indirectly modulate the average intensity. So if I'm going to give you, you know, triple at RP7 as opposed to a single at nine, right, that's going to lead to a different average intensity for the session. Another thing would be volume allocation, like I mentioned before. Um, if I'm having you do a lot of back off work on the main lift, um, that's going to kind of, in a way, be a higher average intensity than if I were to have you do a lot of your work on like a, a further removed accessory. That's not to say I won't adjust back off percentages to some degree, um, but in general, that's not something I like. That's not like the first lever I pull, if you will. So anyway, um, Jake, Zach, anything to add for question two before we move on to three? TLDR, productive training is a range. Bingo. Uh, cool. All right. Uh, third question from Steven. Uh, Steven says, I appreciate your content. Thank you, sir. Um, I'm having some trouble completely grasping the inverse between RP and RAR. For example, my max deadlift is 635, but my two rep max is 565. When pulling a heavy single at 585, it's zero RER because I can't do another rep. But as far as exertion, it feels like an 8.5 RPE. If using Borg RPE, I'm technically lifting with as much as 10 as possible, so it's an RPE 10. Also, if going by the original RPE scale of 6 to 20, should it be based on my heart rate? All right, this is a really good question. So thank you, Stephen. Um, right off the bat, I would say from a scientific perspective, you know, when we're thinking of RPE, the, the, the scale that has been validated is based on repetitions in reserve, right? So an RP nine means you think you have one rep in the tank, RP eight, you think you have two reps in the tank, right? We all know this. Um, but that's not to say in a practical perspective, there might be times where you kind of want to stray from that. So in this case, Steven is saying he's, his deadlift max is 635 but his two rep deadlift max is 565. That's below 90%, right? That's like 88, 89%, somewhere around there, which is typically more like four rep max for a lot of people. Um, 
So in this case, if he were to do, you know, 565 for a single and rate it at an RP9, that's going to kind of not be super indicative of like his true abilities. So this is a case where I think it might be justifiable to stray from the strict um, RPE as RIR type definition. So like if I had an athlete like this, I might look for other subjective indicators to kind of indicate, okay, we're going to agree that this is generally an RP8, right? Maybe when it it slows down um, at the sticking region, um, eight and a half is when it slows down here. Nine is when it really slows down there, right? That, that, that kind of subjective classification. Um, another option in this case, when like the traditional RPs, um, RP-based RIR scale is not super helpful, you could also do kilos in reserve, right? So if you do 565 for a single, instead of saying, okay, how many reps in the tank did I have? You can say, okay, how many kilos do I think I had in the tank? Or how many pounds do I think I had in the tank? So those are a couple practical tactics. Now, um, thinking about Borg RPE. So Borg RP is typically described as RP6 to 20, um, but that's not super helpful for resistance training. Um, really what that is, is typically used for is as a very readily available and cheap way to kind of get a decent gauge of things like um, blood lactate as well as um, heart rate. So like some of the R values you see with Borg RPE between like heart rate and uh, lactate are pretty dang good considering it's like super easy to use. Uh, it's obviously free. Um, so, you know, it, it, it's helpful for that. And that's why it's on a six to 20 scale because very roughly, if Zach were to tell me he feels like his endurance exercise he's doing is an 11 uh, out of 20, he'll be in the ballpark of like 110 beats per minute for a heart rate. So that's kind of why it's a six to 20 scale. But if, if you're lift, listening to this for lifting purposes, you can kind of just scrap that six to 20 scale. Um, another way to think of like Borg RPE or just RPE based on general exertion would be like the CR10 scale, which is just a, hey, on a scale of one to 10, how hard are you training right now? Um, and with, and, and Steven, I would totally agree with you to say that when you're lifting, most of the time you should be lifting with max intent. Um, and so it would be an RP10. So from an effort perspective, yes, in terms of Borg RP, every single rep should be a 10 out of 10, right? You don't necessarily want to hold back um, on, on the intent you're lifting with. So um, hopefully that kind of overview is helpful. Um, in general, our practical recommendation to our athletes is like, hey, we're always thinking of RP in terms of, of reps in reserve. But this is a case where that is a pretty extreme example where I, I might explore like, hey, let's use some subjective indicators or let's think about kilos in, in reserve, that type of thing. But one last caveat here before I pass it over to you guys is that I would only use that for, for top sets. Um, I don't think that would be helpful for, for, you know, reps over like three or four in your case, Steven, um, just because I think, you know, RAR is going to be your best bet with multi-rep sets. Yeah, I, I pretty much totally agree. Um, one subjective classifier that I use pretty frequently actually is just thinking about uh, top sets in terms of like powerlifting attempts. So that would be only super applicable to somebody who is familiar with the attempt selection process for powerlifting. But um, I'll pretty frequently write like single at easy opener, single at difficult opener, single at, you know, solid second attempt, stuff like that. That's pretty subjective. Um, sometimes I'll write an RP along with that. Like that's, an, that's what an eight is, or that's what a seven and a half is or whatever. But um, I, I find those are really, really good um, for top singles, particularly. 
Um, so I, I would, that sounds like something I would use for, in this case for, for the deadlift. So instead of like forcing yourself into the RAR thinking, just simply put one at, you know, easy second attempt or whatever, which should be somewhere between like a eight RP or something like that. Um, but you know, I, I think that'd be an easy way to go. The other thing, um, would be, you know, people's repetition strength just varies a ton in terms of like your ability to perform repetitions. And there's like a ton of factors that goes in, goes into that too. So I, I don't think this is particularly, you know, something to be worried about. I think that's, you know, I, it seems like you're quite a bit, quite a few standard deviations out from the mean here, but, um, but I don't think that's something to be totally worried about um, because we the know repetition performance too. varies. I was exactly what I was going to say next is like the way that you perform deadlift repetitions is also weird because um, the stretch reflex in, in multiple repetition sets makes the um, the way you go there a little bit different, especially if you're resetting the bar. You'll very frequently see people that are doing multiple repetition sets of deadlifts that don't take a ton of time between repetitions. The bar slowly, slowly scoots out more and more forward of their midfoot um, and that, you know, can can expedite the fatigue process um, with multiple reps in my experience. So yeah, I just wanted to, just to add, uh, don't be freaked out. It, it, it's probably pretty normal. We have a study that says, uh, repetition performance ranges from like six to 26 reps at 70% with the squat. So that's 70%. This is like 80, 80, what do you say, Josh, like 89% or something like that. So two reps yep. isn't, isn't out of the, out of the uh, realm of possibility. Just to build on that just super quick. Uh, I agree not to worry about it. It's not that weird. I've also noted just, it seems like particularly stronger guys. Um, I just sort of have moved towards like the reps and reserve model of it generally is great. Right. But then it seems like once we hit a certain absolute strength level, I, I more so move towards that CR 10 type of thing, especially with singles. Um, Cause it just seems to work out that way. Like there's no, I don't have any evidence for that. Right. But it just seems to work out that way. Um, people I used to train with, it was always the same, the same thing, like struggling to, to rate, not me, obviously, but other people struggling to rate RPE at the, you know, when they hit a squat at whatever, 500 some pounds, like, I don't think I could have done more reps, but it was only at this RPE. It just seems to kind of work out that way. And, and, uh, one way also along with what you guys are saying about the deadlift, I think something that can help with that is just doing complete reset on deadlifts not even just taking a second, but actually standing up, reapproaching the bar. Um, that can kind of clean that up and also gives you more time to practice or more opportunities to practice the setup and all that kind of stuff. Um, so I've been kind of moving towards that as well with some of the guys who experienced this sort of thing. My thumbs cannot stand like the complete resets for whatever reason. I like have to hold on to the bar. Like they can, they can withstand like a set of eight at 10, like it's fine. But for whatever reason, when I take my hands off the bar, try to put them back on it's just nope like that's not happening so you can still do like complete resets while if you have that issue so just quick plug for the for the weirdos out there like me i just kind of like chill there for like four seconds kind of count in my head yeah. and then go what do you do you hook grip or what do you do yeah cool anything to add fellas before we wrap up nope thanks for the questions cool yep and if you have any follow-up questions on this or anything else you want us to cover um, there's a link in the uh, description of this podcast episode, so you can drop a question um, for us to answer on a future episode. Quick plug for our newsletter. Um, pretty cool stuff coming out there soon, so head over to data-drivenstrength.com 
um, sign up for the newsletter if you're interested in keeping up to date with us uh, via that medium. And uh, if you have a quick second to leave us a rating on iTunes, that'd be much appreciated. Thanks so much for listening.